pray. We're starting a new series on Ephesians, <coughs> Ephesians, and I'm, to put it mildly, I'm super, super excited about this series um, because of what this book is. But I'm also equally, or maybe more so, totally intimidated. I'm totally intimidated by this book, and I'm totally intimidated by this, uh, the contents of it. I've never preached the book of, of Ephesians, and I've never done it because I just such a wonderful book. Every book of the Bible is special. I get that. Do I sound different? I'm hearing myself and I'm like, that sounds different. Every book of the Bible is special. And uh, they each, in some way or another, they stand out. I'm having my devotions right now in the book of John. And every time I have my devotions in a book, I just love that book. It's just like, have I ever read this book before? It's so rich and so full. That's true with every book of the Bible. But some books stand out in, in, in unique ways. And I'll just give an example of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is such a comprehensive, wonderful book. It gives us the whole scope of redemption and salvation. It's so rich and so full. And you can think of the book of Romans as like the Pacific Ocean. It's just so vast and so beautiful and so great. But if the book of Romans is the Pacific Ocean, the book of Ephesians is Mount Everest. The book of Ephesians takes you to heights that no other book of the Bible that I know of even, even comes close to taking you to. In, from the book of Ephesians, you're looking down upon the whole world like it would be if you were on the top of Mount Everest, and you're seeing it in all of its beauty. I can use another illustration, too. The book of Ephesians is like being in a space capsule and looking at the earth and seeing the earth. If you've ever seen those pictures of the blue and the oceans and, the, and how, how you get this unique perspective of the whole earth. And the book of Ephesians does that. It, it almost takes us from God's perspective and we see things, but then we, we, we understand who God is. It's an absolutely amazing book in, in that way. Now, I'm intimidated to preach the book of Ephesians, but I don't want you to be intimidated to read the book of Ephesians. Because the book of Ephesians was written to the church and perhaps to a group of churches uh, for the purpose of being read and being read publicly. And Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he, he's writing it to all believers, not to theologians, not to pastors. He's writing it to all people. And in fact, in the book of Ephesians, Paul will address children. He'll say to the children. So he expected the children here to listen and understand the book of Ephesians. Paul addresses slaves, people who probably had limited income, I'm sorry, limited education, and he addresses the slaves. And so please don't be afraid of the book of Ephesians. In fact, I would really urge you in the months ahead to, to try to read ahead of where we're going. And that's going to be real easy because we're going to go slow through some of these passages. Um, but for instance, in the next couple weeks, I would really encourage you to take this passage that Dominic just read, 1 through 14, and slowly just read it and just meditate on it. Become familiar with it, uh, its phrases, where it's going. See its structure a little bit. Just take some time with that, and then when you come to the preaching, it's going to help. The question is, is how to preach the book of Ephesians for me. That's a big question. Because it's so rich, there's so much here. One of my mentors, uh, historically, I've never met him, obviously, but was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I'm listening right now to his series on Ephesians. But Dr. Lloyd-Jones preached 232 sermons on the book of Ephesians. He preached it from 1954 to 1962. That's eight years. Um, 
I will be 75 if I do that till the end, and I'm not going to do that. So anyway, uh, but if you skim through the book of Ephesians and you go too fast, then you're, you're missing the, the, the highlights and the, and the glory of it and such. And so we're going to just try to balance that out and, 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 and grasp this book. What I want to do today, though, is I want to give us an overview of something that is absolutely foundational for you to understand the book of Ephesians. It's absolutely foundational. We're going to look at one doctrine, and it's absolutely foundational. And you can see, I'm, I'm, I, I, there's no mystery here because it's right up there in front of you. Uh, we're going to talk about union with Christ. Dr. John Murray, in his great book, Redemption and Accomplished and Applied, said that the, doc the doctrine of union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. The union of Christ is the central truth. He also said that the doctrine of uh, union with Christ underlies every step of the application of, of redemption. And actually, it's literally foundational of this whole letter, and it's through every single chapter of this whole letter, this idea of union with Christ. Well, you say, well, what are you talking about, Todd? What's union with Christ? Well, it's best understood by the, using the terminology of the book of Ephesians, and that terminology is where you see this phrase, in Christ, or in him. And I want you just to look right now, if you, if you have your Bibles open in front of you, I want you to look at your, at your text and notice just the passage that Dominic read for us. And I'm, I'm not going to read it through again. I'm going to just point it out. Look at verse 1. Verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus. Not faithful to Christ Jesus. Not faithful because you love Christ Jesus. But Paul uses the phrase, in Christ Jesus. Now notice verse 3. He says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then notice the last two words, in Christ. And then notice verse 4, just as he chose us, God the Father chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 5, and here the phrase is translated in the King James Version, by Jesus Christ. I think a better translation would be through Jesus Christ, but it's the same idea, because of Christ, having been predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6, he has made us accepted in the Beloved. And then right next in verse 7, look at this, in him. And so you see this idea, in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood. Then look at verse 10, that the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Now, note, now watch this, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. He's nailing that point down, in him. All things have been gathered together. Now, I'm not going to open up these verses because as we go through it systematically, we will open up all of these. I just want us to focus on this idea of union with Christ. But then, look at, again, look at verse 10. That he might gather together all in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him, period. Then notice the very next verse. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Look at verse 12. Who trusted in Christ. Verse 13. In him, the middle of verse 13, in whom? And you'll notice here how many times Paul is reiterating this idea of being in Christ, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, in Christ. And that's the doctrine of union with Christ. And this is incredibly vast. This doctrine of union with Christ is incredibly vast. And just think of it historically. It goes all the way back in time 
to before the world, the sun, the stars, the galaxy, the moon, everything was created way before the foundation of the world was laid. We were in Christ. We were put in Christ. Look at verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is eternity past. This idea of being in Christ is there. But also the present. In the present, we are in Christ. Look what he says in verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Look at chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. There's this idea. By grace you have been saved. We were made alive together with Christ. Our new life is because of our union with Christ. Look at chapter, uh, verse 10 of chapter 2. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk within them. Notice this. We are God's workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's union with Christ. Even the position that we have right now. Look at what Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 6. It's an amazing verse. We read verse 5. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were made alive together with him, for by grace you have been saved. Look at verse 6. And raised us up, past tense, by the way. That's a past tense verb. He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. According to verse 6, right now, you and I are not only sitting in, in, in Crossroads Church uh, in West Salem Township, but you are also right now sitting in the heavenly places because you are in Christ Jesus and he is sitting in the heavenly places. That's the doctrine of union with Christ. Then notice verse 7. It then expands to all eternity future. Verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, God is going to continually pour out the riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ Jesus. And so past, present, future, we are in Christ Jesus. In fact, in fact, we are so united to Christ that death will not even separate us. It won't sever our relationship with Christ. We will die in Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul, 14, I'm sorry, Paul says this. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, notice the end of the phrase. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Notice here that the dead are dead in Jesus. They're still in union with Christ. And then two verses later, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now notice this. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And so even dead, they are in Christ. That, that relationship is not severed. Think about this, dear friends. Death severs relationships. Death severs our relationship with our spouse. 
at least temporarily until we're reunited in heaven. Death severs that relationship. Death severs the relationship with family. Death severs the relationship with friends. Death severs the relationship with our possessions, our home. It's no longer our home. Our cars are no longer our cars. Death even severs our relationship with our body. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We are separated from our body. But one thing death does not do is it does not ever sever or separate us from Christ, ever, because we are in union with him. John Murray has said, put it this way so well, I thought. He said, could anything illustrate the indissolubility of union with Christ more plainly than the fact that this union is not severed in death. Dear friends, when we rise from the dead, we will, we will rise in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22, it says this, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. The resurrection of the dead will be because of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, it says this, and that's not up there, guys. Don't look for it. Uh, and it, Paul said this, And thus we will always be with the Lord. This union with Christ never ends. I think Paul made it so clear for us right now, and I'd like you to just turn with me just briefly. You're in Ephesians, then you've got Philippians, then turn to Colossians chapter 3. To me, union with Christ and our present union with Christ is so powerfully put in the words of the Apostle Paul in, Ephesians, in Colossians chapter 3. In verse 1 he says this, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things, uh, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Now look at this verse. For you died. Well, wait a minute, when did I die? He's talking about you died on the cross with Christ because of your union with Christ. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, we could take months to med meditate on that, but look at that phrase again. Your life, Paul writes to the Colossians, and, and to us, this is the word of God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. In some mysterious, powerful, real sense, you are in union with Christ right now, and you are at the right hand of the throne of the Father, hidden in Christ. You are in union with Christ. You have been seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And Paul's practical implication of that is, is seek the things above, none of the things of earth, because that's who you are, that's where you belong, that's where your head is. That's the doctrine of union with Christ. Now, what is this union? How, how do we describe this? How do we get our hands on this thing? Well, it's hard. It's difficult. It takes some time to think about what Paul means when he talks about this idea of being in Christ. Some, sometimes it's called a mystical union, and that doesn't mean it's, it's kind of airy and, and, and light and, and hard to get a hold of. That means there's a mystery associated with this. This is mysterious, but that doesn't mean it's not real and it's not powerful. Sometimes it's called the spiritual union with Christ. And again, that's not Casper the friendly ghost stuff, which only old people here will know what I'm talking about there. But that's, 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 that means Holy Spirit. Whenever the Bible uses the word spiritual, especially in the New Testament, it means Holy Spirit. It means that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ dwells in us and His Spirit lives in us. We live in Christ. Christ lives in us. There's this union between us and Jesus. And so even though it's hard to grasp and there's, it's mystical, it's mysterious, it's spiritual, it's nevertheless very real and very profound, very substantial, very real. 
And let me illustrate that for you. Isn't that true about other unions in our life? And I'll give you an example. The union that we have with children, with our children. I've had been blessed to have this happen to me 11 times, okay? But 11 times, a newborn baby was put in my arms. My baby, Jan's baby, our baby, was put in my arms. And within, and that baby is just minutes old, just minutes old, new to my life in just the last few minutes. Nevertheless, at that moment, looking at that baby's face and in that baby's eyes, I felt an immense amount of love, an immense amount of closeness, an immense amount of protection. I felt bonded to somebody. I had somebody in my arms that I was now going to live for, take care of, provide for, work for, protect. I would give my life for, and I've only known this person for a few minutes. You know what that is? That's a mysterious union. It's a mysterious bond that takes place between children and parents. And that's what I'm saying. This union, when we think of this union with Christ, don't think of it as sort of theological and mystical and spiritual. It's real. It's significant. It's powerful. And that's what it is. It's a bond. It's a union. And so the Bible, in order for us to sort of grasp it and get a hold of it a little bit, the Bible gives us lots of illustrations. It gives us, uh, they're called similitudes. It's like, it's similar to this, it's similar to that. And each one of these similitudes gives us a little bit more insight into this incredible union, this most definitive of all unions in our lives. More than marriage, more than spouse, more than children, more than anything, this definitive union the Bible gives us illustrations of that. Jesus himself gave us one of the first ones in John chapter 15 and verse 5 when Jesus said this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me lives in me, dwells in me, and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now look at this illustration. Jesus is saying that just like a plant has this main stem and then the branches that come off of it, and those branches are connected vitally to it. They get their life from it, their vitality from it. They can only bear fruit. You cut that branch off and lay it on the ground, and you come back two days later, it's going to start to shrivel up, and it will never bear fruit. But in him, in him, at that attachment, where all of that life flows, where all of that resource, he says, that's illustrating your union with me. That's an illustration. Another illustration that the Bible gives us is a cornerstone in a building. If Go back to Ephesians, please. And in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, this is where this union is mentioned. It says this, Now, for therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So when you, when you back then, when you build a building, you set the cornerstone. Then everything else was built off of that. That cornerstone was the most important thing. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of this building, this spiritual temple that God is building. What Peter talks about, living stones being placed in it. And it's all based on Jesus Christ. Because look at what Paul says. 
It's a, he says this, look at verse 21. In whom, there's union with Christ, in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, verse 22, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Jesus resting, leaning on him, an entire superstructure is being built in union with him. Sometimes the Bible uses the, 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 the unity, it illustrates it between a head and a body. The union between a head and a body. Look in chapter 4 of Ephesians. See how this union with Christ undergirds all of the book of Ephesians? In chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 12, he, Paul introduces the idea that, that of the body of Christ. That there is this body of Christ and Jesus is the head of that body. Then notice what he says in verse 15 of chapter 4. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Now notice this union and how this union gives life and, and, and vitality. Verse 16. For from whom, Christ, the whole body joined in it together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. From Christ, from the head, flows through his body all of that life, all of that vitality, all of that spiritual power and reality and transformation. That's why you cannot grow and be a vital Christian apart from the body of Christ. It's impossible. You try to be a lone star Christian out there, you're like a branch cut off. You're like a part of the body cut off. My body, my hand right here is, is vital and can move. It just got signals from its brain, my brain to move. It's got vitality from it. My brain is telling my heart to pump blood into it. My nervous system is working through to it. it you cut this hand off and you throw it out on the ground and it's lifeless, it's dead, it's cold, it's fruitless. And that's what... Is, comes from the body of Christ, and the life comes from the head. And this is this union between head and body. Another thing that the Bible uses is this idea of Adam and Christ, that as we were in union with Adam, so we are in union with Christ. And, that, and so Adam is the head of the race. That doesn't just mean that Adam was the dad who produced us all by his seed. What it means also is, is that Adam was the representative uh, head of the clan, as it were. Adam was the, 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 the head of this, of this whole uh, group of people. And what became true of Adam became true of all of us. So when Adam fell, we fell. Well, the Bible speaks of that union that we have with Adam. So now we have a union with the second Adam, the, 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 the last Adam, Christ. And so that's why that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22, it can, it can say, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Notice here, in Adam, in Christ, there's union with Christ. Now there's another one, and at this point we need to just, well, you don't need to, I need to slow down, take a breath, and reverence ourselves. Because we are about to walk into holy ground, okay? I almost don't feel, I almost feel, this is so, it's almost difficult to talk about because it's so precious and so holy and so special. And that is, is that the union that we have with Christ, and only Jesus, only Jesus could have said this, I think. It's illustrated by the union of Father and Son in the Trinity. There's a union between Father and Son, and we, it, it's illustrated by that. Jesus did. 
In, in John 14, 23, Jesus said this. Jesus answered and said to him, If anybody loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will dwell, in, we will dwell with him. We, there's, the, there's union here. But then he gets more explicit in John 17, and he says this. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. Now, there's union of believers to each other, but as you, Father, are in me and I in you, there is the mystical, powerful union of, the, of, of God the Father and God the Son, the word who was with God and the word who was God, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, that the glory which you gave me I have given, them, for the, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, and that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. And so this oneness that, that exists in Father and Son, and now in this mysterious idea that God is a God of communion and union, we are being brought into union with him as well. And Jesus said, the same union that I have with you, let's, I want us to have with them. And so this, there's this union. But I think for today, what we're going to do for the rest of today is we're going to, we're going to uh, kind of meditate for the last few minutes here on the union that the Bible speaks of in Christ is illustrated in the marriage of a man and a woman, union in marriage. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. And see, again, I, hope, I want you to see that this idea of union with Christ is so dominant in the thinking of the Apostle Paul and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that it's everywhere. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, the marriage passage, really is about union with Christ. And the, 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 the magnetic pull of the Apostle Paul toward union with Christ, it's almost at one point it seems like he actually forgot that he was talking about marriages between husbands and wives because he's so drawn to this ultimate union between us and Christ. So in this passage, he, of course, talks about the head and the body. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife just as, the, uh, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. So there's union, head and body uh, there. But then he goes on to say, but then notice what he says. That, so he's saying that the relationship of husband and wife is, is, is illustrated, illustrative of the relationship of Christ and the church, of the union of Christ and the church. The union of hus husband and wife is, is, is similar to that, okay? And so then notice what he says. He says in verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Now get past the narcissistic, egotistic interpretation because our culture is so narcissistic and so egotistical that we like, oh, look at that. Paul's telling him to love himself. That's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is the union between husband and wife is so great. They're attached so great as to be one. And they are one flesh, one body, one. Therefore, a man should look at his wife and her needs and her body as he looks at his own. And when he married her and came into union with her in this covenant union, which is husband and wife, in a sense, you could put it this way. He has two hearts to worry about now, two sets of lungs. Two, two, four kidneys. 
He has, he has, he has her body, his body, her body and his body are the same. And so just as we love our own bodies and we, we keep them warm and we feed them and we take care of them and we hydrate them and we're all hyperly concerned about our bodies, husbands should be that hyperly concerned about his wife's body. Is she warm? Is she hydrated? Is she okay? Why? Because she is his body. His body and her body are one because of this vital union, this union, which is marriage. And Paul is now going to illustrate that by Christ. Look at verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but cherishes and nurtures it. Now here he goes. The magnetic draw back to Jesus and the church, our union with Christ. He says, just as the Lord does the church, this union exists between Christ and his bride, his people. Verse 30. For we are members of his body. Here I think he's actually forgotten marriage. He's so wrapped up in union with Christ. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined. I love the old King James. Cleaved to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Look at verse 32. Read it to yourself. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Leave and cleave. Leave and cleave. Leave and be joined. The word cleave means be glued together. Have you ever messed with uh, super glue? I mean like really messed with super glue. Or let me put it this way. Messed up with super glue. Have you ever messed up with super glue so bad that you can't pull your fingers apart? You know, they tell you, if you mess up with super glue so bad, you may need to take a razor blade and slowly, carefully break that bond, and you're probably going to cut yourself and everything. Could you imagine pouring it all over your hands and going like that and holding it there for an hour? That's what the Bible means when it says leave and cleave. A man shall leave and cleave to his wife, and they shall be then totally glued together and be one. And he's saying that's what Christ is with his people. I'm telling you, friends, this is glorious stuff. This is glorious stuff. There is a oneness. There is a unity between Christ and his people. When we are in Christ, we are glued and cleaved to him. And it's mysterious. Again, we're, we're thinking, I'm, try, I'm pulling an Apostle Paul here. I'm still in marriage. I'm still in marriage, but I keep going back to Christ because that's what Paul was doing as well. But think about marriage. Think about marriage. It's mysterious. It's tangible. It's real. We become united. We become one. We become bonded together. And so we become, we almost become like one word, one name. Todd and Jan, Dave and Mary, Bill and Evie, Henry and Stephanie. We don't talk separately about them. We don't say, I'm inviting Todd over, but not Jan. No. Well, I thought maybe we'd have Henry come over. No. We have Henry and Stephanie. It's like one phrase, one word. And that's what marriage is. That's what union is. And they begin to live together, married couples. They think together. They own everything together. Why? They're united. The house is their house. The cars are their cars. The bank account is their bank account. And when they get a raise and when they come into fortune, then they become well off. We were talking with a married couple just yesterday, Jan and I, and uh, the husband was out, uh, he was out uh, uh, at the car getting stuff, and she was telling us, they were struggling financially a little bit, and she was telling us that as soon as he gets, done, gets his degree and gets done with his program that he's in, then he is, his income is going to be really high. And it was like, and she was just sitting there talking like, 
and we will be, it will be much easier for us. She didn't say it'll be easier for him. He's going to be making a lot of money. I don't know what I'm going to do, but he's going to, no. It's like we're married. And when he prospers, I prosper. Why? Because we're one. Married couples do things together. They think as a unit. They discuss things together. They take vacations together. They have goals together. They have dreams together. They work on things together. They are, they're a team. They remodel a room together. They landscape outside together. And they don't instinctively, married, good married couples, they don't instinctively ever again, they cease ever again to think about themselves individually. They always think of themselves in union with this other person. They don't say, what am I going to do on Friday night? They say, what are we going to do on Friday night? They don't say, what am I going to do on vacation? They say, where are we going to go on vacation? When one is in the hospital, where's the other one? In the room sitting right next to them. When one of them is in a wheelchair, where's the other one? Pushing the wheelchair behind them. That's what union is. When one is sick... What's the other one doing? Mixing up orange juice, giving aspirin, covering them with a blanket. That's what union is. They don't say, oh, well, he's sick. Get away from me. You know, that's it. No. No. They begin to think alike. They begin to have similar tastes. Sometimes they begin to look alike. They certainly begin to act alike. That's what it means to be married. And, there's a, and, and, and in this union of husband and wife, there's this intense commitment and protection, it's vehement. It can be ferocious at times. It can be dangerous. You try to hurt her, I'm going to hurt you. You try to kill her, I'm going to kill you first. You're not getting to her until you come past my dead body and you're going to have a problem. Where does that come from? It comes from the union that you feel with this person. And you can come fresh off a fight with your wife. We're not even sure you like her right now. And somebody threatens her and says, you're not even getting close to her. You get out. We become very protective of these unions. Even a godly jealousy. When somebody tries to interject themselves in that, no, 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 a godly jealousy says, no, no, you get out of here. No, we're not having any contact with you ever again. And this bond is so great that, like I said, when one succeeds, they both succeed. When one is sick, they both struggle. And when one dies, it's like half of you is gone. It's this union. Dear friends, now let's take all of that and think about you and Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, the beloved of the Father. Truly God. And you, dear Christian, are in him. You and Jesus are like this. And there's nothing that can pull you apart. You remember Jesus said, all have been put in my hand. I will not lose one of them. And then Jesus said, and my father, he won't lose one of them either. And he's greater than all. You see, you and I are like this with Jesus Christ. And in some wonderful, amazing, spiritual way, and I, 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 I can't go into this detail right now. We're going to try to wrestle with this in the weeks ahead. We were like this in one wonderful way in the mind of God before the world was created. Again, look at chapter 1 and verse 4. Just as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world. We were in Christ then. We weren't even created yet. Nothing was created yet. But in the mind of God, we were in him. I, I have to make things simple because that's the way I am. But Jan and I have had the wonderful opportunity. When Jan and I met, we met at a very specific moment, at a very specific time, in a very structured way, which is unusual. You know, a lot of times you'll see, you'll see the girl across the classroom or something like that, and you go, no, no, no. We were on a mission team together, and the mission team was going to meet for the first time. And so we were going to meet at somebody's house. I never met her. She never met me. We both showed up at this one place. We actually have a photograph. We found a photograph recently of the very first conversation we ever had sitting on the lawn together talking. Somebody took a picture of us. Then we went into the the room, and the whole mission team there shared their story. And so I heard her story. She heard my story. And we met. And we were just talking the other day. And I was like... This woman's amazing. Where did she come from? And I don't know if she was blown away by me, but I was blown away by her. But anyway, the bottom line is this. The bottom line is this. One of the things we joke about is, we're not joke about, we just kind of think about fondly, is we see that picture and we're like, like 40-some 40, 40 years later, 43 years later, 11 kids, you know, 17 plus grandkids. This is crazy. God must have, God knew it all. Like, God knew it all. And in fact, God brought us together. And this week I had a conversation with my mom. Jan and I were both there. We were having a conversation with my mom. My mom told us a story, which I had heard before, but it's true. My mom was drowned. My mom was following her brothers in a park, and she went into the thing, and she was a little kid, and she was drowned. She was floating in the water. Her hair was floating out like this. And some man jumped in, grabbed her, and pulled her out and saved her life. Well, at the time that Jan, she's sitting there, and she's telling she was kind of focusing on Jan. I'm sitting there thinking, oh. Holy, Jan almost didn't have a husband. <laughs> None of these kids were almost not born. <laughs> I, I was almost not here, you know. And you realize, but in the providence and wisdom of God, no, no. And so you see, dear friends, in the mind of God, you're so precious to him that he locked you in with Christ before the world was created. And... When Jesus died on the cross, in a mysterious and wonderful way, you were there and you died with him. Paul says, you died. You died with Christ. And when Jesus' dead body was laid into the tomb, lifeless, you were buried with him, Romans 6. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, you rose with him. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, it's not like, okay, wait, you stay back there. You rose with him. And you, when he comes, you will reign with him. You will judge angels with him. And you will never be seen apart from him. You say, but yeah, but when did this become real for me? Well, there was a time when you, in another sense, were without Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul is writing to the Gentiles here, but we can certainly, and most of us are Gentiles here anyway, we can apply this to ourselves. But look what he says in verse 12. At that time, you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants. You, at that point, you were without Christ. And some of us know of the time when we weren't trusting in Jesus or believing in him. But then he goes on to say this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. And so when did this become a reality and operative in our own lives? Now, again, let me go back to the illustration of Jan and I. Before time began, 
God, who is infinite and eternal and knows all things, knew that Todd and Jan were going to get married and knew that they, they were going to, they were going to, he knew it, he was going to bring us together. My mom's drowning, he pulls her out, he, and not just for me, but he pulls her out for lots of other reasons too, but, but part of it was me. Jan and I were going to get it, but, but it wasn't until Jan and I got married that that became a reality for us. So in 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul writes something like this. He writes like this. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So in the application of redemption, there came a time when God called you into a relationship with Christ. And for you then, all that was planned of God before the foundation of the world in his predestinating love and grace... That became real to you. And that's why I can say to you, dear Christians, right now, this is your relationship with Christ. You are locked in. Super glue is all over it, and you are stuck together from all of eternity. And Jesus and you are one. You are in Christ. You haven't become divine. You're not God. He's God. You're not. But you are in union with him. You are locked in. Just like married couples right here, are locked. I'm locked into Jan. He's locked into Evie. He's locked into Stephanie. We're locked in for life. We're locked in. But us and Jesus, we're locked in forever. And nothing will separate us from his love. Nothing will separate. Death itself will not separate us. I may die. I may have a hard time breathing. I may be suffering. I may, my body may go. But my soul, my spirit, I'm locked in with Jesus. And even my body will one day be reunited. But I will always, always, always be with Jesus. And Jesus always lived and acted and did and left heaven and took on flesh and went to the cross and died and was buried and rose again for us, for us, for me, for you. And that's what it means to be in union with Christ. And the implications of this are vast. And certainly one of them, which I hope has already been happening in our hearts, is this should overwhelm us with a humble love and praise and adoration. And I hope the thought came to you at least once this morning. I'm sure it has. Lord, why me? And I'll give you the answer. It has nothing to do with you. It has all to do with grace. Oh, it has something to do with you. He loves you, but you contributed nothing. It's all of grace. It's all of love. In the mystery that is this love, you before the foundation of the world in the mind of God were locked in with Jesus. God, God never thought of you apart from Jesus. And now that you have come to faith, and now that it, it, the reality has become real, the marriage has actually taken place when you came to trust in Christ. This, this is you and Jesus forever, forever. He's locked in with you. You're, part, you're the part of the bride. You're the body. He's the head. You are the, vine, the branch. He's the vine. And this is it. This is what you have. So the first thing that you do is just fill us with wonder and amazement and joy and love. But then it should also give us this strong sense of security and safety and well-being and, and good, good, good is going to come, good. And it should actually change, like we do, like married couples get, we begin to change from thinking about ourselves individually and autonomously. Do we think about ourselves in union with him? 
And that's why the Apostle Paul will say these things that we struggle with, but he imbibed us completely. You died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Seek the things above. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. You are sitting in the heavenly places right now in Christ Jesus. All the honors that he's got, you got, you're going to share in his glory. You're going to have a resurrected body just like his because you and him are tied in together. This is a great life. By the way, while he's writing that, the chains are clinking because he's a prisoner. This is a great life. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. We are one with Christ. We are Christ. We are we, we let, I'm in the heavenly places with Christ. I'm in a Roman prison cell right now. But I'm in a Roman, I'm in the heavenly places with Christ. It should transform how we look at ourselves. Should a man's wife flirt with other men? Should a man go into a gentleman's club who's married to another woman? No. That's unbecoming of the union that you have with your spouse. Well, we need to think of it this way. I'm in union with Christ. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians who were going into prostitution, into the temple prostitutes in Corinth, he said, do you realize that you're taking Christ into that place and you're attaching Christ to a prostitute? He literally used union with Christ to get them sickened by what they were doing. When you were in the embrace of that prostitute, you brought Christ in with you because you're in union with him. And he loved you so much that he went to the cross for you and he went with union with you. How can you do that? It was a total transformation of who I am as a person. And that's what this should do for us. Now, if you are not a Christian here today, you know what my hope has been for you and my prayer has been for you this week? Is that as you heard this message, you began to feel so hungry, so longing to have this kind of union with the Son of God. You see, right now, you are without Christ. You're alone. You're going to live alone. You're going to die alone. And when you die, apart from Christ, you are going to be severed from him forever. You're going to be cast into outer darkness. The hope and chance of you ever being united with Christ is going to be gone forever. You're going to be alone in darkness, in remorse, demons around you, in hell forever and ever and ever. Why? Because you weren't in union with Christ. And somebody sitting next to you who is equally as sinful as you are, but by grace and through faith are united to Christ that will never happen to them. Jesus will never let them happen. All who have been given, all that the Father has given to me, not one of them will perish because they're in union with Christ. And unbeliever, I just am hoping that right now you are so hungry and you are thinking, I want to be in union with Christ. I want to be in union with Christ. Well, here's the good news for you. Today is not the day of judgment. Today is the day of salvation. And Jesus is saying to you, come to me, come to me, come to me, and I will give you rest. Come to me, and I will give you everlasting life. All who believe upon me, turn from your sins. Turn from anything that's keeping you away from me. Give it up, forget it, forsake it, walk away from it, and come to me, and I will save you.
and you will be in fellowship and in union with me from this moment on forever and ever and ever and ever. Why would you say no? Why would you say no? Don't say no. Don't damn your soul. Why would you say no to being united with the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you're thinking, you're saying, oh, I'm not sure I want to do that. I'm not sure. I mean, don't you see how wicked your heart is that you would even think that? And how much you need him. Oh, oh, that God would break your heart and that you would humble yourself and you would say, please, Lord Jesus, please. And Jesus said this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And all who come to me, I will not turn any away. Union with Christ Union with Christ is offered to you today by Almighty God. And it's the only way of salvation. The only way of salvation. Oh, dear ones, may God give you grace. Flee to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how ugly you are. It doesn't matter how many sins you have. It doesn't matter how many ugly skeletons are in the closet. Jesus came to save sinners. And he will save you. He can save you. He's mighty to save. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much that you are so loving and so concerned about others, your Father's will and your sheep and us, that you, you did so much so that we could be in union with you. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. I say with the fellow believers here, who in the world are we? Oh, how wonderful it is. How marvelous that you have done this to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And help us to live our lives as people who are one with Jesus. And Father, I pray for any unbelievers who are here, whether it's a young child, whether it's a teenager, whether it's an older person, who has held off Jesus and avoided Jesus and even said bad things about Jesus his whole life or her whole life. I thank you that you are so full of grace that you are genuinely offering salvation to them this day. Open their eyes. Save them, I pray. Come to them, I pray. Hear their cry, I pray. And unite them to you. I just love the fact, Lord Jesus, that you delight in uniting with sinners. You delight in saving us. And the angels rejoice every time somebody repents. Oh, may its repentance and salvation come to any who need it this day in this place. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.